Statistics on this film. Levitated by the human touch. Antonio's galloping forward. Here's the pass. Antonio's through. Chance of four. What a goal! What a brilliant strike by Mikel Antonio. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Knees Up Mother Brown podcast, the West Ham podcast from the world's most popular independent West Ham website. I am joined as ever by my two analytics scholars. I have Jack Elderson with me and Callum Goodall. Uh, for those of you who play a bit of football manager, I'd say Jack is your, he's just setting your opposition's instructions. He's, he, knows, he knows your tactics, he knows your formations. Well, Callum's, he's, he's analytics behind the scenes, so maybe more numbers and names for your transfer needs. This week, we'll be looking at a huge win at home to Liverpool and a little bit of an odd one away in Genk. Um, but before that, if you have any comments or questions for the three of us for the podcast, uh, any and all correspondence can be sent to uh, our, web, our email, which is kumbpodcast at gmail.com, added to the, th- the thread on the uh, Knees Up Mother Brown forum. And of course, we, we do Twitter as well. Uh, it's kumb.com. That's all words, no punctuation, not a, not a dot, not a full stop. Um, but we should start with the, the victory that sent a shockwave through the Premier League and delivered a message to the chasing pack about what this West Ham team is all about. Uh, what, what, what an afternoon and what an evening. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. One of my, one of my favourite um, days at, at the new stadium. Just uh, what a fantastic experience. Um, I, I, had, <laughs> I had two very um, undercover Liverpool fans in front of me which made it even more enjoyable uh, when the second and third goals went in because they were doing a very good job of keeping very quiet. And um, <laughs> when the second goal went in, I just sort of poked my head between them and went, unlucky lads. And then they sort of both looked at me and went, is it that obvious? And then the third goal went in and I jumped on top of both of them <laughs> <laughs> and forced them to celebrate. So, uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Great fun. I say, it's, not, it's not an accent that... Uh... That you can hide, really, is it? All right, lads. <laughs> Jelly yeah. deals, is it? <laughs> uh, how, did you, how did you find it, Cal? Obviously fantastic, but other than that? Yeah, man. Um, yeah, enjoyed it. Unfortunately, didn't make it to the stadium. Uh, I was actually sort of juggling, peeling spuds and chopping carrots while I was watching the game um, with some bootleg Stellas from Lidl. So it was a different experience, but nonetheless as enjoyable, I'm sure. Um, no, I did hear that a lot of people are saying it's the best they've heard the atmosphere at the London Stadium since we moved there. So obviously a shame to miss out on that. But looking at the way we're playing, who's to say that we can't then top that atmosphere once again at some point this season? Because we look like we're just going from strength to strength at the minute. So yeah, buzzing. It, I mean, you could, you could. Uh, we were talking about this. Uh, we did the post-match stream for Eyes Up Mother Brown last night. It, it, and even the people who were there agreed. The people at home were saying you could hear there was a ferocity in that crowd that really played a part, Jack. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, how would you feel? Was that, was that, you go much more regularly than us at the moment. How are you feeling on the atmosphere for that game? By far the best, but probably only, the only game I can remember that might rival it would be Chelsea in the cup when we, just when we first moved. Um, I wasn't that one. <laughs> which, t- which turned quite sour, but had that kind of Upton Park vibe, sort of that very, mm. um, on top of the players, kind of all-consuming crowd, are really playing a, a really significant role in the match, and you felt the same 
um, with the Liverpool game. And I, I don't think that was necessarily the case throughout all of the first half. I think we kind of got distracted by the referee uh, in the first half. And it was, it was quite sour, actually, at the end of the first half. People were really angry about the referee's first half performance. But in the second half, when we came out and we pressed a little bit higher and came out of our low block a little bit, then the, the fans were completely onside. And every chase after a ball, every instance, in that way that you got in games like this at Upton Park, where everything that happens creates this huge roar, it was like that for 45, 50 minutes. And that, I think that's it's peak, you know when you know when you've got a good West Ham crowd. It's, it, when it's not just goals and tackles, but it's kind of someone does effort. And that gets a huge reaction. And yeah. that, that was that yesterday. You could see everyone knew that every little, you know, drop of sweat really mattered. Uh, and it, it was it was interesting having those boos. And I'll, I'll go on to we'll go on to the officiating because it was a big deal. It was funny reading comments from Liverpool fans post game when neither side were particularly happy with the referee at the end of this one. Uh, so it's it's, it's 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 one of those weird games where decisions haven't gone how people feel, regardless. But we should probably start well. We were about four minutes into our podcast. It was about four minutes into the game where Ogbonna jumped in front of Allison, and Allison decided he needed to punch <laughs> the ball into the net, Callum. Yeah, yeah, it was a great start. Um, I'd literally just flicked it on as well. Uh, so it was, I seem to have a habit of that at the minute, regardless of what game it is. I tend to put on a game and, and a goal just goes in. So maybe I'll start <laughs> start flicking on games at random intervals and we'll win like 7-0 or something. Um, but, but yeah, it was it was great. I don't think you can have too many complaints with it, to be honest. And I think it says a lot that I haven't seen a single pundit say that it shouldn't have been a goal yet. The only people is Klopp, Alisson and, and maybe a few Scousers. But um, yeah, great way to start the game. Once again, playing to our strengths. Like we're, we're just imperious from corners now and... and um, as we touched on in previous podcasts, I think Moyes actually alluded to it in his post-match interview, uh, giving credit to Nevin and Nolan for actually like choreographing distinct corner routines. And it's not the same routine every time either. It's not like, I don't know, yeah, trying to think of obvious ones, but like England at what the World Cup when it was the train with Southgate, and every time it was the same train and it was like, okay, well, cool, we're doing something different, but it's not... At, when does different stop being different because it's just the same every time? Whereas this time it's like, we scored so many goals from corners and each one is different. Even in that game, it was one to the back post, one to the front post with a 4-1, well, 4-1 formation. <laughs> box sounds a bit weird, but like the, the placement across the box. Um, yeah, and it's great. And and like we've said, like it can be ugly, but it's, I don't think it's that ugly. When something's executed so perfectly, I'd say it's actually pretty impressive because otherwise everyone would do it. I mean, yeah, and I, I, I think on the third goal, especially, I will go back to corners because there was an interesting thread with the corners. But could you, could you, you've watched it back again, Jack, since getting home. Could you see anything that was a foul? With the first one, absolutely not. No, um, I, I think it's 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 quite enjoyable, really, watching the despairing interviews afterwards of where's the foul ref when really I. I, I know there are other areas where we qu- will criticise the referees' first half performance, but referees usually, by default, just give those things as fouls. Keeper falls over, that's a foul. I think the referee was really strong, looked at it and went, well, there was nothing wrong with that. And then again on VAR, you look at it and say, there's clearly nothing wrong here. The, 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 key, the key thing, if anything, that happens is there's no protection for Alisson from any Liverpool player. So that allows Antonio to block. He's not doing anything wrong. There's nothing illegal. He's allowed to stand there what creates often these illegal situations is a, is a defender being there, often allowing the forward to be sandwiched between the defender and the goalkeeper and the defender pushing backwards to make the contact on the keeper look more obvious. 
here Liverpool aren't doing that. So Antonio is perfectly within his, in, within his rights to create a block on the keeper. The keeper gets past that and then just jumps into Ogbonna's back. Ogbonna's doing nothing wrong. He's perfectly entitled to jump for the ball. Your arms are going to come up naturally. His arm, his right arm actually comes up when Jota pushes him when he's off the ground. That's when his right arm levers all the way up because he's trying to keep his balance. And then, you know, Alisson completely flaps at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see what Klopp's complaining. Any, any contact would have been incidental, probably initiated by the goalkeeper. Interesting, I hadn't noticed it was Jota pushing a bono. Obviously, that's where, that's where it started between the two of them. <laughs> uh, I, I think we, we can go, we can go to the, how the staff flowed from there. But I suppose we should look at those two main refereeing talking points in that one. Um, challenged by Cresswell, Callum. What, what I mean, what, what were your thoughts? Um, fine. I think I was worried for about ten seconds after when everyone started to make a bit of a deal out of it. I was like, "Oh, okay, maybe it was bad." Um, but I think before we go into it properly, I think one of the one of the telltale signs that it wasn't really a red is that if it was, all the Liverpool players would have been on the ref screaming at it. But no one, no one actually tried to appeal for a red. Like, and I mean Liverpool of all teams, <laughs> we we know that they get into the refs here they would have been the first ones to chase it down. And I think there was a general acceptance on the pitch, at least, that that it was just a, a some, an activity that happened. Again, talking, putting it in the in the terms of basketball, they call it basketball inactivities when it's not actually a foul. It's just something that happens in the game. Um, and yeah, it's, that, that was it. I mean, it, same with anything. If you slow it down enough, it's going to look bad. You can, you can make things look bad. You can, People can post freeze frames where his... His leg is high up, Henderson's leg, but that takes all context away. And, and the reason his leg was high up is because he won the ball, but his foot bounced up off the ball after making contact and then took all the pace out of the tackle. So if anything, maybe a yellow, I guess slightly reckless. He maybe came into it slightly out of control, but no, never a red for me. I mean, I know you've been looking at it today, Jack, watching your, doing your watch for on your Twitter I mean, I would, I would point, because I've, I've, I've been looking at it today, having been bombarded by friends who are fans of other clubs who probably more than anything just want to annoy me. I mean, I think the, the key point is his foot, his other foot is on the floor when he makes the tackle, which suggests he wasn't completely out of control. There are, there are a few things that would constitute it, it, it becoming a red card. And, and, and the key area that this one is on is uh is recklessness and, and excessive force and these two things kind of are a bit like a seesaw and you, when you if you get both of them together then it's a it's a red card so not like a seesaw at all that's a terrible analogy but uh <laughs> but so that snaps the seesaw right? <laughs> yeah that snaps the seesaw and equals a red card um, so the first tackle, his tackle technique isn't perfect and that's where the recklessness comes in. And I think it should be a yellow card because he's he's going just over the top of the ball, which is what creates the problem in the first place because he hasn't made clean contact with the centre of the ball. He's too high. So he's made contact with the top of the ball, which has meant that his leg has bounced upwards and then uh, his, his studs have gone into Henderson's leg about knee height, but without any kind of force at the point of contact because all the force has been taken out by the collision instantly, uh, initially with the ball. And, and for me, there's there's not... As they said, as as VAR have come out and said, uh, and as they spoke about on match of the day, um, there's not enough intensity in the in the initial tackle. There's not enough um, excessive force in the initial tackle for that to, to come back and be a red card. I was surprised the referee didn't give a foul because it's quite clearly reckless, and I think there's a strong argument for for a yellow card. 
but um, I think the argument for a red card is, is pretty weak. I think that's it. The, between the two of you, especially the activity part of the, the basketball activity term, I like that quite a lot because <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's, he can't control, there, there is no way you can control what happened with the ball because it's completely fluke and there's, there's no way you can know your body's going to do that. It's, it's different to the Holgate one that people are pointing to because his foot carries on in emotion. Yeah. It's where it's gone. I mean, I, I, Holgate's was worse than Balbuena's <clears> last year that got him sent off, which was really unlucky. But Cresswell was, he, he, he couldn't control that because he was knocked off his feet by the ball. It would, it, it's hard to really pinpoint him having any blame. Both start both the Holgate and Cresswell challenges start at yellow cards at the point that they make contact with the ball because they're both reckless tackles. The difference is is that Holgate's follow through shows the excessive force. The point at which he makes contact with Hoybjerg, there's massive force carrying on through the tackle. At the point at which Cresswell makes contact with Henson, there's no force left in the tackle. So that's where the big difference is. It's interesting because I've seen Liverpool fans saying they should have made more of it, and I and and then also the pundits after the game saying, "Well, Henderson did him a favour. Henderson's down for about a minute." Yeah. For an injury that he doesn't limp at all from when he gets up. So he's, I mean, you, you can question the motives of that. There are dark arts and I understand them, but he's certainly employing them. And if, mm. if we go dark arts, Jota's flailing elbow, which takes Ogbonna out of the game, Callum. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, for me, in real time, I wasn't sure. And they didn't show that many replays of it during the game. So they didn't really have yeah, well, yeah. Um, so I didn't really have much of an opinion. And they didn't, again, they didn't talk about our match of the day or anything like that. So it's it kind of one of those things that I sort of had been waiting until today uh, to kind of make any real judgment on. Um, because yeah, having a judgment at the time makes no odds because it's not going to influence the game. So I'm not the ref. But uh, having seen some replays today that have been put up on Twitter, um, Jack shared some of them. Um, yeah, I think... I'm, he's very lucky to to get away with it. I think it's completely unnatural the way he he flails his arm out, um, and I I don't really see how how it's not a red. Really, I mean we've seen reds given for even more ridiculous fit, like way more ridiculous things. I mean we talked about it on the last pod, I'm pretty sure, but the the Suchek one at Fulham, like that's <laughs> comparatively Jota should be out for months. But I mean, I mean it's not that bad, but like if one is. I know it got overturned, but still, like, I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's the angles of it or something. They couldn't get the right angles on on VAR and stuff like that. I have no idea. Or did it even get looked at on VAR? Actually, I can't even it remember. did. It did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So they decided it was fine. <laughs> it's interesting to me because I I look at it thinking if I have my hands there and I I I my I I assume his arm position is bracing for contact. I can't tell from the replays, and it's difficult with replays whether his arm moves before Ogbonna gets to him, or Ogbonna gets to him, which forces his arm to jud back, which then causes the contact. So, I mean, I know you've been looking, again, you've been looking at them a lot today, Jack. Well, I mean, again, we come back round to this all the time on, on issues like this. You can talk about slowing things down and freeze frames, making everything look worse. The, 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 that absolutely is the case with the Jota thing. The slower you look at it, the worse it gets. It doesn't look horrific um, at, at full speed. And that's why I think it was glossed over the, the the key issue for me one i have no idea how a foul's not been given because you the, the ball arrives at, at about waist well eventually arrives at foot height but when jota sees it it's at about waist height there is no reason for him to jump there's absolutely no good reason for him to jump whatsoever so it's, it is absolutely reckless endangerment because he turns his back and jumps into the player there's no attempt to play the ball 
he's clearly trying to play the man that is a yellow card all day every day by any kind of there's no way to argue yourself out of a yellow card there the question then becomes is it a red card and this is a really difficult one for far i can understand in some ways why it hasn't um, been given as a red card it would have been very contentious because basically there's two things you've got to prove one is it excessive force or one is there or the other is there intent the intent thing you can't prove i don't think you can say jota's in, intended to go and harm one there are some people saying that i don't think that you can really argue that at all there's not there's no way to really tell when Jota's jumping backwards whether he's intentionally throwing his elbow out to try and hurt Ogbonna or whether he's trying to protect himself the problem is is the injury caused to Ogbonna clearly shows that there was quite a lot of force in the elbow he throws back he definitely throws an elbow back it's whether like you say Ogbonna hit coming into the back of him forces him to throw his arms back to try and protect himself from falling straight forwards on his face or whether he's bracing for impact and then throwing his elbow back to try and stop the impact either way they're pretty borderline between a yellow and red both are illegal you can't do that Uh, and and for me there's a pretty strong argument for excessive force because it took him out the game he's had to go and get stitches we assume because he went off with a blood injury Mm. i suppose the problem is i guess i guess as a referee you can't look at the result being blood and say that must mean force because arguably you could, it could have been just a little bit of bad luck with just a slight corner and hit. I mean, if he's hit him in his eyebrow, that's a bleeding spot. I know that thanks to wrestling. Um, <laughs> 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 we're not going to change those decisions, I suppose, but they are worth talking about. And it's, I, I, I said to, you know, I think I've written in my match report, you want to keep that Jota one in your back pocket. If someone comes up to you and talks to you about the Crestwell one, because arguably it's worse. Yeah. Um, what, why Why do you think after the goal did we sat back, Jack? So, I mean, we were deep until they scored. In fact, we were, we, we only seemed to attack once they scored. I, I, whether that was tactical or not, I know. Do you, do you think they pinned us back? Do you think we dropped back? Was it quality on, on our part? I, I think they were our tactics. I mean, we scored four minutes into the game with our first attack. I don't think you could say that we, we dropped back after we scored. I think that's just how we yes, set up. I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we set up with a, a 4-4-1-1 that dropped into a 4-5-1 with four nows being able to cover the spaces. That really is quite sensible um, because Trent Alexander-Arnold more and more these days is kind of coming in and being an auxiliary midfielder and not really playing from right back. So in order to cover that overload, because you've basically got four midfielders and Henderson's drifting out and there's this rotation between Henderson and Trent, you kind of need to pull someone into that area to stop balls being played through your left inside channel from from West Ham's perspective. So the four-five-one, in that sense made a lot of sense. And actually limited them to very little i can't really remember too many excellent chances half an hour it took for them to have a shot which was a header by jota yeah and i can't really remember too many good chances i mean half chances maybe at best yeah. in the first half and then the goal comes from a free kick so i think you can see that the tactics were more about limiting liverpool and then being really quick on the counter we were much more successful with runs into the channel behind matter because trent gets so high and it's just completely out of position balls that went in behind robertson and van dyke generally were unsuccessful so i i, I don't think that we sat back i think you know Fornals is jumping out every time trent isn't coming into that into that area for now is going out to pressure Fabinho but generally it's a 4-5-1 which is saying all the spaces are blocked there's really nowhere for you to go other than wide cross the ball into the box we've got Zuma in there you're not going to get anything out of us mm-hmm. should we not have been offering was it were we, okay I suppose the question is were we were we doing it badly in the attacking part because we weren't really offering those counters 
should we should we have been offering more even if we were by choice by design or by ability we we should have offered more in that first half on the counter-attack we could have been much more accurate when we when we got the ball on turnover but part of the problem is is when you all your players are withdrawn into these two lines and you've only got one further forward there's not really a a, a deeper pivot so to hit so for example the contrast with the second half is that Fornals is five yards higher up the pitch so you can hit him first and let everyone get five six seven yards up the pitch to be able to create a counter-attack in the first half you've just got to hit the channel and hope Antonio gets to it there's no there's there's no other way to because the count Liverpool's counter press is so intense and they were so good in the first half lose the ball they win it back so you, mm-hmm. you don't have time to to take a touch and play an, an intricate pass into midfield you've just got to hit that ball straight away and and we were forced to do that in the first half as Antonio had chances he could have done better when he got in behind because it's it's always on against Liverpool it's one of those Antonio moments that I think you why when when Callum in the week asks us to kind of define Antonio when you're looking for a new striker you think how do you define a player who can run through on goal and forget or make a touch that bad to leave the ball behind. Mm. And also, who else but Antonio? I think everyone else in the team doesn't. No one else in the team does that. Uh, I suppose when you were watching the first half, Cal, other than sheer panic of being a West Ham and watching it, what, what, kind of, what were you noticing? What were you thinking? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, always on the edge of your seat when you're a West Ham fan, aren't you? Um, yeah, it did. I, I completely agree with Jack. I think I've seen a lot of people... Um, and I spoke to my old man about it as well, and he was very much of the opinion that we were far too defensive and we, we've we got the personnel to, to take it to Liverpool, so why we should have attacked them more. But that's just a very simplistic way of looking at... It's, it's like a very binary way of looking at it. It's like you can either attack or defend. And because we sat deep, we were therefore defensive and weren't offering anything. And like, like, like Jack said, we probably could have offered more on an outlet. And I think that that was just one of those days. Like <clears throat> I think throughout the whole game, we had seven counter attacks and only one of them resulted in a shot. So about 14% and through across the season, I think the average is 45% of our counters in a match have turned into shots. So it's just one of those days where unfortunately we on another day, we probably could have had three or four more shots, which based on the, season so far could have likely turned into goals because we know that we generally are quite clinical in those situations uh part of that i suppose has to be attributed to the fact that they've got van dyke and yes they play this high line and you can get through but also they've got this huge geezer with ridiculous recovery pace which still to be fair i would imagine is not at its peak because he's still probably working him his way back to his peak of fitness after a pretty lengthy sustained period out um but yeah if you come up against him then your ability to counter is is already limited because you're not you're not getting in behind i don't know tarkovsky and ben me who aren't going to catch you if you're antonio you're, you're getting in behind and then you've got van, virgil van dyke bearing down on you and not only is he rapid he's also one of the best defenders in the world so his his ability to tackle you without without fouling you or, or just nullifying those opportunities is, is quite high uh, and we saw that a few times like Antonio yes he, he killed a few counters by taking a dead touch but also though I think at least twice he was through he was about to shoot and then Van Dijk just got his foot in front of the ball and, and it either went out for a corner or, or it just stopped the attack so yeah it's one of those things like I guess people can criticise us for being far too defensive but as I've said before on the podcast I think it is just us recognizing the strengths of the opposition and our strengths and then it's just a balancing act there and and some might call it two defenses others 
would say it's brilliant management. And I think when you get the three points, if that's how you do it, I can't see how it can be anything other than that. He's 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 looked at the game, he's assessed it, and he's and he's managed it perfectly. I suppose the, I suppose the argument is they scored, as, as Jack said, that it was a set piece, and it wasn't what they created because they didn't create that much. Um, dive or no dive, Mo Salah. Kind of, you could go first. No dive or dive. Um, I think he, I think you went swimming. If you're going to ask me a yeah. question, but um, yeah. Uh, I, tw- I tweeted at the time about it being a dive, largely just to get nibbles off scousers, and it did work. Um, and it was great because then I was like, oh, I can't reply because what if they win? And then we won, and then I, then I hit him with a nice little gift. So that was great. Um, but yeah, I, I do still... I think there was probably contact. It wasn't an, It wasn't a complete dive. Like, I don't think it was simulated, but I don't think he, it was contact enough to warrant going down. He could have stayed on his feet, but he, he's... I don't know. You could call it clever. You could call it cheating. <laughs> it's, he knows he's going to get that free kick in a dangerous position, and you know you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold, who's got a pretty high high percentage of it, at least hitting the target. And I don't know. It's not very sporting, but I don't know. Liverpool are a team that will go to any length to win a game, and if that's going to get you a goal, which it did, then you're gonna you're gonna try and get every opportunity to go your way. But yeah, probably simulation. I mean, it's interesting because I, I think I tweeted at the time uh, later on in the game. If you touch them, they will fall. Um, and I guess that is part of the game now. I mean, maybe this is strikers catching up for the seventies and eighties, where you could grab someone by the nads, and it was just it just makes a poster <laughs> rather than a, fra- a foul, Jack. I don't know. But what was your opinion? It's a it's a, it, it's a dive and it's a foul. As yes. mad as that is, mm-hmm. it's both. It's a stupid tackle from from David mm-hmm. Price. He's got cover on the inside. There's no need to make it. He's completely missed the ball. He leaves the ref no chance but to blow up for a foul. If Salah stays on his feet, it probably doesn't get called back because the game carries on. There's no reason for Salah to go down. Salah sees the leg. It's you know, it's just the classic thing. He just looks at it, goes, "That's a bad tackle. I'm going over." Yeah, mm-hmm. because that way it's going to be a free kick. It wasn't a bad enough tackle that. Rice made much contact with him, but in in the referee's mind, that's kind of irrelevant because yeah. no, Rice he's, clearly he's, yeah. impeded his ability to carry on. He's just put his leg in the way, and yeah, there's not much contact there, but it, it's still a foul. It is one yeah. where I will I will give the ref the ref no judgment because he, he he can't he can't really decide too much. It's interesting. One of the lads said, "Oh, and I was at Mobile Brown last night." The problem is, you're, you're saying don't touch him on the edge of the box. But if you don't touch him on the edge of the box, sometimes Mo Salah beats three men and just smashes it in the top corner. So I understand the urge to do it. Um, should, anything we could have done with the goal then, Jack? I'll go back to you as I know you have strong opinions on this. Yes. Well, no and yes, same no, sort of thing. Yes. No, it's going in. There's nothing Fabianski can do to stop it from going in, even if he doesn't make the mistake that he makes. But And that mistake? You, as a keeper, when someone's taking a free kick... Don't jump as they kick the ball. And he does the, the cardinal sin of goalkeeping from free kicks, which is he tries to get a look round to the left, can't see. And then just as the, as the player's about to kick it, you may, uh, keepers always do this. Keepers are always bouncing. It sometimes helps you feel like you're ready to go and you're going to be able to dive to something. But you've got to stop just as the, as, the, as the free kick's about to be taken. And he carries on. He's just bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. And then as the shot's taken, he bounces and then realises as he comes down to ground, well, now there's nothing I can do because the mm-hmm. ball's already passed me. So that's why he looks so silly because he comes down and he just goes like that. 
with his arms falling down towards the ground and you're just looking at him thinking well what are you doing how's that happened but it's just jumping when the when the free kick is being taken so it's one of those that David Priest. I miss David Priest on things like the BBC because it's nice having a goalkeeper who tells you actually there's a reason why goalkeepers are doing things and what they've done wrong do you do you pay any heed to the the commentary and the punditry Callum saying that had we had Jared Bowen in the wall further forward and not Jared Bowen maybe someone who's above five foot four we may be stopping that yeah I was actually just going to say five that foot not, four might not be necessarily harsh, about yeah, yeah a little bit um I think yeah I did I questioned that at the time to be honest when the, if you look at the position of the free kick and where the ball is on the edge of the box and sort of where Fabianski is in the goal and where he's positioned his wall I think he could have potentially moved his wall like maybe two strides to their left just to cover like if when you see one of the replays from behind the free kick there's a there's a fairly sizable portion for Trent to aim for and Fabianski's not in a position to reach it anyway so I think if he did just move the wall across his his goal would have been defended better in in my opinion but yeah also to have Jared Bowen on the end of the wall is is almost just is not in the wall really because it has just gone over his head like he's yeah so much smaller than everyone else I'd love to know why he was a little bit back I don't know what that and that can't have been him just going oh, I'm not joining the wall I'll stand here mm. that must have been a reason I mean you'll never know I suppose the other thing I would bring up and it's hard to discuss is if the referee stops them moving that ball backwards and to the side that three that free kick is a lot harder for them to score I hadn't even noticed that. They they roll that ball, they move the ball, and they roll it backwards. When you mentioned in commentary that they've moved it, and it just doesn't matter. And it's one of those things where you think, you play on that as a player. again. Do you remember (laughs) why did that? I mean, they do. And it's it's smart, but it is not... And I I kind of said on the thing last night, if you you allow these things, you encourage them to do it. And they were encouraged to do it. Um... I think just quickly, not to not to be fully completely cynical West Ham fans, I think we probably should just say it was a ridiculously good free it, kick as it, well. It was like, quite credit where quite credit's due, it yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah, he, he is a very talented player and it was a lovely, sweet striker at the ball. Um what what changed then for us? Because regardless of whether we were trying to defend them or not, almost instantly they where they scored Jack, we played we played more football and I think they allowed us a bit as, as well. But what not not just what changed from that moment, what changed tactically? Because I know they've talked about the four nows in particular, but that, and you've watched it today to look at. What do you think changed for that five minutes and maybe the 15 minutes after half time? Well, the five minutes in the first half is just playing with more impetus. It's like when you've been playing in a low block for ages and then they score, it's like, okay, well, everyone needs to wake up now. So, and then, <laughs> so everyone's just making their runs a little bit sharper. Everyone's a bit sharper on turnovers. So we just played with a lot more impetus for the five minutes before half time. Looks really good. And then at, at half time, it's quite a bold change to make. It's a complete, I mean, Moyes described it as a subtle tweak, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I really enjoyed because it's, it's really bold. We played in a low block for the whole first half and then we went and played and what what I think we're probably one of the best teams in the league and maybe one of the best teams in the world at doing this, the mid press, which is this four four two styled thing where it can become a four four one one and the and the creative midfielder drops in deeper, but it looks like a four four two when you're pressing, and you've got two advanced pressers to stop the six from having any time on the ball to stop center backs from having any time on the ball 
to force the opposition fullbacks to drop deeper to create options because there aren't enough central options. Um, and basically what it means is if they get through the first layer of the press, you're in serious trouble. But if they can't get through the first layer of the press, then you're winning the ball in the midfield area. It's not a high press. You're not going after it when they're playing the ball around in their own third. But as soon as they hit around the halfway line, Rice and Suchek are up five yards. The, the two wingers come up five yards and four. Now and Antonio commit to the centre-backs to stop allowing the ball to go back. It forces the ball into central areas. And that's why you see all these turnovers from Rice or Suchek with interceptions or tackles on the halfway line and springing counter-attacks. It's a bold thing to do against Liverpool because they pick teams off when you do this. They've picked us off before and when we've done it. It's a, it's a risky strategy, but... The pressing in the in the in the second half was outstanding. The shape of the of the team, the angles that people are running to to, to pressure Liverpool players, it's all absolutely perfect. And their accuracy on turnover was absolutely brilliant as well. And Van Dijk had to have a, a, a truly a, a pretty worldy performance for Liverpool to stop us from scoring several more goals. I think I mean you, uh, the, the time when it became really obvious, Scala, was they uh, a little five minute spell a Declan Rice floats a diagonal over Trent Alexander-Arnold and you it, it's it's the 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 maybe the the curse of being a team like Liverpool is if you've got a weakness it's talked about all the time because pundits want to make their point and people say over the shoulder Alexander-Arnold Ben Rama however on that was fantastic to take that ball down and then it's Van Dijk stopping Bowen probably scoring mm. yeah yeah it was annoying because it's was probably like one one decision away from being a goal. I think I think at the time I called for Benarama to um, maybe shoot rather than trying to put it back to Bone just because of the presence of Van Dijk. I was like, well, if we do that, the percentage of it, <laughs> the likelihood of him uh, preventing it is pretty high. Um, and I think it was obviously the, only the day before Zaha had scored a pretty similar finish from a similar angle, just kind of slotting it across the keeper. Um, but yeah, uh, we can talk later on, I guess, about Trent and over his shoulder as well uh, with that corner and exploiting that back post weakness and stuff. Um, but yeah, like Jack's rightly pointed out, the pressing, the pressing after we went, um, after they can, after we conceded was just ridiculous. And um, perhaps the best pressing performance I've seen from the team this season, I think in terms of just how well executed it was and the quality of the opposition it was against, like this isn't pressing effectively against Norwich or someone like that. This is like, pressing effectively against arguably the team renowned for, for counter pressing and stuff like that. So it's if you if you're gonna do it well against anyone, it's it's Liverpool that you want to do it well against. And I think that's testament to how far we've come and how far we could potentially go if if it's um to be maintained. So is that is that mid block where we get the second goal? Do you think? Because the way we break from and I mean, if we're going yeah. to talk this second goal, I I don't think I've seen Jared Bowen run with that kind of confidence. Oh, mate! In his West Ham career, I, I, there were three or four people chasing him as he burst through. I, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a difficult team, and there were that he was hounded. Yeah, it was impressive. I think his intelligence he displayed as well. Like, I think uh, there was an easier ball which was to Antonio, and he he sort of held the ball for a little bit longer um, than than a lot of players would have done. They, a lot of players would have just poked it through to Antonio, giving him enough space to just run onto it uh, and hope for the best. But he kind of held it probably, at the time, probably longer than I thought he should have done until I saw four nows then breaking through. I was like, oh, okay, I see. And then he just puts in a perfectly weighted pass and then, um, yeah, four nows just slots it home. Perhaps, perhaps Alisson could have done better, but oh well, uh, that's not for us to worry about. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't want to take anything away from Pablo and and even that sort of the movement, the movement as well to actually get in that position. And and I guess it's something we've seen throughout the season, the amount of men we commit on those sort of breaks. And I guess that comes up to the tactical and and the shape of where the positions people are occupying on the pitch, that we have those numbers to commit uh, almost instantaneously as soon as we win that ball back. Um, And yeah, again, just another perfectly executed move that is, is clearly worked on on the training ground. So that 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 goal is kind of epitomizes why Fournells and Bowen were my top two in that order uh, for my other match, Jack, because they they're doing so much work and suddenly doing so much going forward for the team as well. Was there anything else you noticed on that? Well, Bowen was saved by the tactical change, really, because he really struggled in the first half in the low block um, and was one of the sort of um, main offenders in terms of the lack of accuracy on, on, on turnovers and then you see once he's getting the ball rather than being getting the ball on the edge of your box and and he's a dribbler by nature he wants to take on three or four players or run away from players or carry the ball into central areas and then pop it off he does that brilliantly for the second goal but when he's trying to do that on the edge of your own box you've got a lot you've got to go a lot further <laughs> and, and that was the main issue in the first half actually in terms of us getting out is that that's how we play that's how he plays and every time he gets the ball he's trying to carry the ball and it's just not on and he's losing it. Um, yeah, and then in the second half, you just see the advantage of Bowen picking up the ball five yards inside the opposition's half. He can carry across 10, 15 yards. He's brilliant at it. He's always been brilliant at it. And that awareness then to pick the pass, yeah, brilliant. And, and Fournau's same, uh, did a really good job. Uh, Fournau's actually was really special because you have to what you have to take into account is that he was asked to do two completely different things in two halves of football against the best probably arguably the best team in the world and he did both exceptionally and that that takes such wonderful kind of a, um intelligence and ability to say okay i'm going to be covering the spaces playing in a in a sort of low block midfield jumping out to press when it's on in the first half and there's a lot of pressure on me to be the one to notice when it's the time to press and when it's the time to sit in the midfield and then the second half to say okay now i'm going to go and be the, at the top of the team pressing really high on Mate and on fabinho and i'm also going to do a really good job of that and then when i get the ball on turnover i'm going to be extremely accurate and always pick the right pass really 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 special performance and not the first i don't know what happens with him when um liverpool come along no he does he loves it he absolutely loves it yeah he's obviously listens to the pod as well because last episode i called him out for his terrible knee slides and this one time he did a perfect (laughs) one with the salute and then the point to the badge so yeah yeah i I, I mean, I, I went for a 10 and maybe I should have given him a 9. I'm, I'm very excitable after a game. I mean, what I think, what really impressed me was then afterwards, late on, it looked to me like we went closer to a 4-1-4-1 and it was often Suchek behind Fournells and Rice. And Rice, I mean, Suchek, Suchek and Rice had quietly brilliant games comparatively. But Fournells suddenly drops back in again. You think he's this player who's just done this leading line. He's doing these presses, he's choosing. And now suddenly he can sit in and still mm-hmm. judge that danger and give us that, which is, I mean, I've always said his intelligence is probably better than maybe every West Ham player I've ever seen in terms of game intelligence, because he does seem to have that awareness, 360 awareness and awareness of what he needs to do. But yeah, I was, I was delightfully blown away. I even used Spanish last night when we were being recorded. Because <laughs> I, 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 I've been doing Duolingo for about five of the 50 days. I'm rubbish at it, but you know. Like that owl. Pablo. That's my sleep paralysis demon. Now. <laughs> uh, I'm a <our> Pablo. Hugo <laughs> Um Third goal is it? It's probably Hugo Doris, actually. A third goal. I mean, I wish why I want to go. Our corners 
I will probably, I, I will go to Jack again. Our corners, more in the six yard box than usual. Do you think that, well, I mean, that's what it felt like in my eyes. Do you think yeah. they look targeted to me is what I'm kind of going for anyway? They, they absolutely were. I think it, I think it was Antonio who said it in his post-match interview that, um, Nevin and Nolan had, uh, had told everyone to target dropping the ball on the keeper because the keeper's weak from high balls that are coming straight onto, on top of them. So, and, and this is just, you know, I mean, we've talked about this, uh, sort of touched on it earlier, but um, the fact that we don't, we've got so many strengths from set pieces and we've got so many things we could, we could just say, right, Dawson's great or Zuma's great. What we're going to do is we're going to float the ball and allow and create blocks and allow Dawson or Zuma to attack it and just take the same corner all the time because we've got good players that are attacking corners. But instead of doing that, what we're seeing week, week in, week out is looking at the opposition, looking at what they do worst in terms of defending corners, targeting that area and tailored set pieces to, to, to be able to exploit the opposition's weaknesses from mm-hmm. those, from those situations. And, and, and the third one, I mean, it's it's perfect for how you would want to take a set piece against Liverpool. It's a high ball straight over the top of Allison. You've got a block on Allison because they don't have a player on him. You've got a block on Van Dijk, which takes him out the game as well. Most important player to take out the game in terms of Liverpool defending set pieces. And where does it land? Right in Trent's zone. He's terrible aerially. He's I mean he's a wonderful right back. He's brilliant, but aerially he's just not really up to it in these situations and it's very easy for Zuma to just sort of walk into Trent's zone and, and nod the ball in I mean it's it's I mean I'm I, I've never seen a perfect example of ball watching more than watching just standing he was ready for the ball to come to him as if yeah. no one else was in the game yeah he's just walking backwards expecting <laughs> yeah. it to bounce and for him to be able to chest and turn no one's here. This will be fine. I mean, it's interesting to me, Cameron. I think that's five goals from set pieces. We've, I've got Stoke accusations coming at me. It's also five goals for Liverpool from set pieces, I believe, this season. So set piece goals. And those, those top four set piece scores since Moyes came in, I think, were Man City, West Ham, Liverpool, Chelsea. Yeah. It's a, you score more goals, so you score more goals from set pieces. I mean, well, it's finite it. details. It's... it's... <laughs> the, the, the claims of all oh, the, the ugly football are oh, stoke blah 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 like it's just so funny because the best teams will get the best out of every situation and and particularly teams that average a lot of shots the the likelihood is that you're going to average a lot of corners because you're going to force a lot of saves so you'd be an idiot not to try and capitalize on on those sorts of scenarios especially if they're going to happen semi-frequently um which they do for us and and even more so for those elite elite teams although to be honest I think we can probably put ourselves in that bracket this season we are now um, at least in the context of this season an established top four team we're like a quarter of the way into the season and we're there so um, but yeah uh, it's it would just be silly not to not to exploit that because it is if you can do it well a goal and uh, yesterday we we only had three corners which is actually less than uh, we usually get but 100% of them led to a goal-scoring opportunity. Two shots, uh, the Zuma goal, Dawson, header off the bar, and then Obona, or, well, Alisson's own goal. But still uh, an attempt on goal, uh, regardless of who created it. Well, we'll kind of wrap this up. But I do really want to admit the Dawson one was interesting to me because he ran from deep to out, which I thought, again, mm-hmm. never done with Dawson before, so must have been planned, which just... Yeah. Well, I think we, that's we it as well. We're getting. The diversity of it as well is that we've had three corners. We've done a different routine every time. So even if Liverpool think, oh, on the next one, make sure you pick him up or whatever, like they can't prepare for it. Like you have no idea what we're going to do. 
So it, that's what makes it so dangerous is that regardless of, like we've said, we watch footage of, of other teams defending corners to pick apart their weaknesses. But because we do that, teams can't watch us attack our, our attacking set pieces to go, oh, this is what they like to do on attacking set pieces because it's it's reactive to the other team's performances. Like the, the best thing they could do is basically just fix their errors, but clearly Liverpool didn't do that because we managed to exploit them so effectively. Set pieces is a really, can I just jump in? Set yeah, pieces is a, is a really funny thing as well in terms of the derision of teams who do well from set pieces because how many, you get a handful of chances in a game of football to restart the game from a static point where you've got the advantage on the opposition of knowing exactly what you're going to do and they have to react to what you're going to do from a standing start. You get maybe five to five to seven of these chances per game usually. If you don't exploit them, then you're not really taking the game seriously. I just, I just don't, it's part of football. I don't really understand why you would, like taking long throws. They can be very, very successful for teams who use it very well. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. you? If you've got someone who can take a long throw, do it. Who is it that's been doing? Is it Brentford this season that just look like to cause absolute danger every time they get a throw? Exactly. And I'm not going to sit here and say, well, because you're not you know, passing through the opposition with lovely, neat, intricate passing, that therefore mm. you're just not you know, playing football the right way. Well, often you you do beautiful things and don't get rewarded. So you'd be foolish to, I mean, arguably Arsene Wenger's Arsenal, the biggest problem was they forgot the ugly side that won them the league. That's the problem with Arsenal. No, let's try and walk it in (laughs) That's the kind of analysis you need on a podcast. Oh, display last night. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in a way, I don't think we could talk about the Liverpool second goal because it was a bit of pure magic from a player who's quite underrated in a way. I, I, yeah. I think, I think there's something interesting with the, with the second Liverpool goal. Uh, and Please, I, by all means. I think that's, that's that we dropped into a low block at that point. And, and actually what causes the, the Liverpool second is, is about, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds earlier than the second going in is, I don't know what happens, it's a lapse in communication, I can't even remember who it is that drives the press, but someone decides that we're going back to the mid-press. Mm-hmm. And, and we all fly out, at, but we're not ready, like no one's in the right shape to be able to set this up. The, the, it's just wrong. You've just dropped into this low block, and then someone goes, well, you know what, I'm having that. And then we all <laughs> have to kind of chase after the ball. And, you know, and that means that, the, that they get through the first layer of the press. And then after that, you know, it's just wonderful skill um from divokarigi yeah. i mean i forget the, the biggest mistake clearly I, I can think of comes from Mane's miss that was the one time i thought we yeah. really failed and got away with it where we didn't get away with mistakes and you're going to be proud of me is genk where we made plenty <laughs> of mistakes to begin with but i know you love it you love a transition Callum. so That's i do it for you yeah, we didn't we had 15 20 maybe 25 30 minutes possibly more where we were in we were a mess with Genk. We were, I mean, as we move on to Genk, I think it's worth noting that we set up this bad performance. It's our fault. We set up this bad performance on this podcast by not bothering to talk about the Genk game because we, we, <laughs> we'd, we'd got three points when we were recording. So why actually bother to win the game? Um, I, Jack, you're my tactics man. What? What happened? What? <laughs> <laughs> this is a it's 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 an interesting one because it's you you want to give Moyes license to try 
different things and to try new systems and to try different ways of of undermining opposition teams and Genk caused us quite a lot of problems in the first game so I don't really think the instinct to, to say well maybe if we try and do, do things differently to how we did in, things in the first game we can maybe minimize the impact of someone like Juniorito who had a great great time against us in the first game and there was their lack of accuracy in the final third that stopped them from scoring a couple of goals mm-hmm. um and and it's a sh- it's a shape not that we've seen specifically exactly the same before, but we used I think it was a a three one four two off the ball against Brentford, and it's 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 something that maybe Moises is, is targeting teams who who use their goalkeeper in build up and um, and trying to get enough numbers in and around. Um, them as they, as they as they enter the first phase of their build-up. So you the two centre-back split, the keeper comes out to the edge of the box. And actually, because they've got three players there, you need an extra player to, to press. I think that's probably where it comes from as an idea. So basically, we do a mid-press a lot. Sometimes we do a low block. And here, we try to high-press. Um, and I've seen us do it from in, in patches, only really from goal kicks against Brentford. This is the first time I've seen us properly try and implement a high press in, in all phases of the game. Uh, so a three-four-three, Lanzini playing through the middle, Antonio off to the left, um, and just basically committing three players to that area of the pitch to try and stop them from being able to play through us and to win the ball high. It not only didn't work, it was an absolute catastrophe. It was a total catastrophe from minute one to about minute 25. It was a just a completely sort of unadulterated, unqualified catastrophe. It's the worst I've seen us play in years. And mm. um, it was, I think, probably about minute 18. There was this wonderful moment, I'm watching it on the telly, that Rice turns to the bench and the, the camera zooms in on Rice at this moment. And he just screams, we're too open. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, as if to say the obvious, uh, please help me. Because, you yeah. know, it's one thing, to, to sit in a mid-press and leave Rice with Noble's lack of recovery pace uh, alongside him. It's another thing to go, we're going to high-press, Noble's the one that's going to go, and now you have to play midfield literally on your own. There's going to be no one with you. You've got to cover yeah. the entire central space on your ones. And the other thing is it just... What's really strange about it is it doesn't really do anything in terms of maximising our players' strengths. Why The El power right centre-back, please, no, never again. I don't want to <laughs> see it. It's never looked good. Just put him back where he likes to be. He's comfortable there. He was great when he went back there. But it's a nightmare on the wrong side. So, you know, it's really, I understand why he wanted to try it. I get the reasons behind it. But ultimately, strange. And it didn't work at all. It's interesting trying something new with different, when you're, he thought, I'll try something new. And I'm going to rotate players. He didn't think I'll try strictly yeah. with my rotated players. That's what it came across to me. I was kind of, like, I don't, I'm not sure if Noble was meant to be pressing or if he just did that thing he does sometimes where he decides I've got a, I, I watched football in the 90s. I've got to take the ball by the I, horns. Yeah, I don't know, man. It, it was painful watching him. I can't lie. Like, it was, it was just insane. Like, it, yeah, there's, there's no words. Like, that first half an hour was just bonkers. And I think maybe there, maybe there is an element of a, He's been playing football for X amount of X amount of years now, and <laughs> maybe he's just just knows one way because um, he definitely did not look comfortable in in that setup. I was just going to say, Jack, just for the benefit of the reader, we've given an example of us as a good team that that operates a good mid block. What can you give an example of like a really effective high pressing team, just so that people might know? Liverpool. 
Liverpool are the perfect example of, a, of an excellent high-pressing team. They, they execute it perfectly. One of the things you have to have when you high-press is recovery pace. One of the things that we did not have yeah. in that game was recovery pace. It's, it's, a, it's just a mad thing to do from the outset. Yeah. I just wanted people to be able to visualise it without thinking of our version of a high press as yeah, being yeah. a high press. Because whilst that's what it was by name, it certainly wasn't in reality. No, <laughs> it was just yeah. horror, a horror show. If I want to talk to someone, we've, we've gone through the two two main main. I mean, I, I'm going to bring up Maswaku because I know you want to talk about another person. I felt a bit sorry for Arthur in that game. If anything, he looked like a man. I mean, I, I think I wrote it in, in our little chat as we were watching. He'd been asked to do something to begin with that, the, sh- the team wasn't working. So as we changed, he got asked to move inside and play kind of tighter into Antonio. You've got a man whose main strength maybe mostly is using his left foot, really sticking out wide and dribbling. And he's tucked him inside. He looked like he had no idea what he's doing. And I think he deserves credit for most of them, actually, most of them, Diop and him in particular, but Noble as well, who did settle. They all deserve a bit of credit for getting their sh- together, getting their expletive together after a dodgy performance that could have left them, you know, squandering I mean kind of nonsense a mess all game but also for that pass before before I let Maswaku go that pass across the face of goal where Ben Rama maybe should have scored maybe was stopped by a very good save uh, by Van der Voort but the other person who having been praised to the high hills when player of the round Carabao Cup the other week uh, the goalkeeper Callum mm. yeah pretty poor um yeah, I mean, poor, poor across the whole pitch. But ultimately, had he been on form, we we wouldn't have conceded the the goals that we conceded, or, or at very least one. Um, his expected conceded goals, I think, uh, was oh, I had it written down, but I've lost it. But it was something like uh, one point two, and I think we conceded two. So underperformed by zero point eight. So yeah, if you look at that, we we shouldn't have conceded two goals, basically. Um, and I guess that there was other saves that he did make throughout the game, but they were saves that you would expect him to make. And the problem is that the goals he conceded were also saves that you would expect him to make. And and yeah, we've 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 rightly praised him for previous performances, particularly that one against City where he was just inspired. But then, yeah, if we're going to praise him when he plays well, we've also got to criticise him when he plays poorly. And that that was one occasion where he just was not on form. Would not have picked Genk to be the place where he conceded his first goals. Well, probably worse than Allison for the four hours goal as well. Yeah, yeah. I think part of it, yeah, it was it was poor goalkeeping, but I think as well, I think you've got to give a bit more credit to Genk. I think because whilst in the first game it didn't look as though we were troubled, they had nine shots and none of them hit the target, and I think that they still created chances. It was just one of those that, and whether it's just our good defending that meant that we nullified them and, and made their, their opportunities to shoot more difficult, but they had more shots this game and this time they hit the target more often and, and we kept some out and then terrible goalkeeping, unfortunately let some in, but um, yeah, I, d- I don't think they were, they were terrible. And I think the three nil initial scoreline, I mean, they were pretty dead that day and we, we played a lot better, but, but um, I think they were a better side than a lot of us thought, thought they might have been, after that first game, for me at least, I thought it'd be a walkover, and that they were a lot better. I thought we 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 did in, we did improve a lot, and we did look the, the class difference started to come through in the second half when the changes first tactically and then personnel were made. Jack, um, but was it was it had had we had we adapted, or was it the the quality that was brought on, especially in Suchek, that really got us that? No, it's, we, it's, it's it's that we adapted. It's that we adapted, and frankly, we were absolutely outstanding. 
uh, in the second half, second particularly, half, yeah. it was an unbelievable performance. And the fact that we drew the game is just mad because we had so many chances. Even mm. at the end, after the own goal, we had two excellent chances yes. in the final two minutes of stoppage time. Oh, it, we tore them open several times after the changes. Masuaku, as you described, put two excellent balls into the box when he was playing in that really weird, unfamiliar <laughs> position where he being asked to drop central off the left. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just think we changed the system and, um, you know, and it kind of showed in some ways how silly it was to try the, 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 the high press in the first place because as soon as we yeah. started focusing on what we do well, we were blowing them away for, for pretty much the, the whole game after that. And then the own goal is just mad, isn't it? I mean, it's a, a lot of people have blamed Suchek for that, but he has to get his head on it. And then, you know, what can he do? It just flies in. It's totally unlucky. I, but I've just realised that, I, that I've, I've, for weeks and weeks and weeks, anytime Ben Rama does or doesn't do anything, I've come straight to you. We're now into a geek discussion where the boy has run the show in the second half, ably supported, I would say, by Lanzini, who was possibly until that goal, the goal, second goal at least, man of the match. I haven't come to you yet. So the Ben Rama show in the second half, wax lyrical as I pretend you always want to. No, well, look, Ben Rama's always had this in his locker. It's, he's always had this. And, and, and yeah, the some will argue that he only shows it against um, weaker opposition. But I think, you know, he's a confidence player. And when, he's gets, when, he's gets, when he gets given the chance to play inside, dribble with the ball, carry the ball, take on his man, uh, he, he's always had this. And it was, it was an outstanding performance from him. But frankly, I think, you know, it's just what you want to see from him normally. It's just the kind of, kind of quality that we know he can deliver that we want to see on a, on a consistent, consistent basis. He performed brilliantly here. I thought Rice performed brilliantly in the second half as well. I think, as you say, Lanzini was quite good. We, we were pretty good as a team in the second half. And, 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 and yeah, it took Ben Rama, to, particularly the second goal, just a moment of individual brilliance. But, you know, like I say, this is, this, that's what he's meant to have as a player. So I'm pleased to see him delivering it for us on the pitch. I suppose we also mm-hmm. say tactically, but whether there was a mentality thing, I know Rice came out after the game, Cal, and said that he's constantly telling, he's constantly chatting to Ben Rama, telling him he's good, telling, picking him up. But also whether there was a mentality, actually, because it was a bit of a mess, and they weren't familiar with the system. You could see Rice's frustration. You don't often see that. Whether that was also limiting them in the first half because they didn't feel it was right. Yeah, I think so. And I think that probably is even more obvious to them on the pitch when they've had a season where they've played so effectively in this tactical setup and then they've just decided to change it and it's not working. And they must all be out there thinking, well, we're playing crap, but we know that we can play really well in a different setup and it's worked so far for us this season. So, yeah, I imagine there's probably an element of frustration because they probably feel like they've been sent out there and, and they could be doing a better job, but they've got to follow these instructions that they've been given. And then and then we did adapt and, and yeah, it, it did work. Um, and I was just going to say just quickly, I found it quite funny when I was looking at some of the numbers Um for this game, given that we were playing a high press, so you would, well, to begin with, so you'd expect um, less passes per defensive action um, because you should be harrying the opposition into into forcing turnovers and stuff like that. Uh, and they actually averaged five more passes uh, per possession in this game than, than they did in the home fixture, which is just saying how poor poor that high press was really because um, it opens up spaces on on the pitch and they can just pass through us essentially because you've got players being pulled all over and then then there's way more space on the pitch to play in whereas when we do this mid block it just it closes those gaps like we saw against Liverpool and, and you force them to do stuff they don't want to do and then then it works so yeah 
we switched it over eventually and, and it paid off. And yeah, like we said, probably unlucky to win, to be honest, because we did batter him in that second half. And were it not for an unfortunate own goal, then who knows, we'd have got the three points. But um, I, I think the last thing I, I want to come to is is Cresswell. Uh, and, and actually, you know, across both games, but across ages now this guy is performing to, to the best level we've seen since since he first arrived and probably better at the moment yeah Salah what did he get out of Cresswell very oh, very little nothing at yeah. and this guy has destroyed everyone he's come up against so far this season Cresswell deserves huge credit for that and then again against Genk as with pretty much every performance so far this season this guy and his line breaking passes how we get the ball out of defense yeah Cresswell every single time finding passes to offensive players in space in the final third or in midfield it's all the time it's through every game and he deserves huge huge credit for it because he does such an important outlet for us in possession it's why he's not being replaced I would say yeah that's what I was going to say and I think one of the things is that I see a lot of people on Twitter saying that whilst he's good in, in the progression and, and getting that ball into the final third and stuff, he, he lacks defensively, which is something that I've, a belief that I've subscribed to and has been fairly easy to subscribe to because it's, it's been fact. But this season, I think he's averaging around 75% success in his defensive duels, which is just unheard of for Cresswell. Like usually you think of him as getting skinned and, and then having to chase back and either commit a foul or, or concede an attempt on goal. But yeah, winning three out of four of your defensive duels is for a guy that's towards the end of his career is, is pretty impressive. And yeah, I think like you say, we've got to give him credit at both ends of the pitch, really. I did, I did, and I've, I'm annoyed at myself for waiting this long because it was the, it was when Ogbonna first got injured. I thought that Cresswell's reaction to cover is it's him who takes the ball of Salah when Salah turns, mm-hmm. and that was brilliantly def, brilliant defensive awareness. And I'd also think when whether it's a case of Moyes knowing his players and a manager who knows his player, so isn't exposing Cresswell's weaknesses. And if you have, I mean, that is really what the key of management should be, I suppose, is making sure you're getting the best out of those. Yeah. Um, we've, got, we've got an international break next week. So the podcast will have a bit of a different look. It's, um, we'll probably go, we'll go for strikers, Callum. We're going to have a look at strikers, <laughs> uh, look at the head yeah, to January. Yeah. And this is where you earn your corn, young man, because this, yeah. this is your bread and butter. This is... I mean, we're, we're, put, we're putting our feet up. We, we, we've, picked, we've picked a couple of strikers to look at to, to mainly have a pop at you with, and then you've got to prove us yeah, right or wrong the other way. And, that, and we, we will, that'll be next week. That'll be a big dive into that. And uh, I mean, those of you who know Cal and Jack from Twitter, you'll know the work they've done on these things. So we'll, we will have data. This will get analytical. Yeah, <laughs> and please write in if you've got anyone that you want us to cover. Like, if you've got any names you want us to have a look at. I've quite a few people have messaged me on Twitter about strikers to look at and I've, I've been building this model in excel for a while now and i've put all of them in there so i will be i will mention make sure to mention those that people have requested and tell you how they stacked up in the model so don't feel shy to do it i've now i've got an extra bit in our in our spreadsheet where i just write down players that i want them to because <laughs> i don't really want to do the work because it's you know there's brains and maths or whatever but um, yeah so that will will, will be a transfer worth transfer worth of callum transfer worth of strikers he'll probably stay if he if he does the job we'll see what we're doing <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, we will look we will look forward to Wolves as well a big away game kind of come back down off the ceiling probably a good time to have a break a little bit of a shame that Jared Bowen hasn't made that England squad especially with the withdrawals maybe they'll be new from we're away but um, yeah that's the two main things to look out for next week but that has been the Knees Up Mother Brown podcast do write in those same addresses if you have anything to ask or have any opinions or other feedback but otherwise, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. 
thank you, those of you, for listening or watching, and good night. Right, so we're here in the offices of a late late show with the host of a late late show, James Corden. Hi. Big West Ham fan. Yes. <laughs> I'm big knees up, Mother Brown, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm regularly on the general discussion page. There's always someone who's got some information, so I love it. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yes, it's Find excitement them. surrounded by imminent disappointment. <laughs> that's what it. That's what it mostly is. Get on the forum at kumb.com. Come on, you irons. <laughs> <laughs>